0: Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined across the dispatch box by none other than Zach Green. On today's show, Zach and I are going to be discussing some things to do with the British local elections coming up in May this year. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to ask you, Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days?
1: I think what's caught my attention, I think it's Going to be catching a lot of our listeners' attention was something I think that happened. Was it last night about this parish uh, council meeting on Zoom uh, that involved Jackie Weaver, who is now uh, a star of the viral um, viral council meeting? That essentially she cut someone off, and then people were the people on it were saying that uh, it was an illegal meeting and that you do not have the authority. Uh, was, was said, it's now, I think, trending on Twitter in capital letters. Uh, it, it's a light-hearted thing that's caught my attention this week. It's a pretty funny thing uh, if you get time to watch it. You have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. No authority at all. She's just kicked him out. I, I, no, I, it, no,
0: she's
1: kicked him out. Don't, don't. She's kicked him out. Don't. This is a meeting called by two councillors. Illegally may now elect a chairman. No, they can't, because the vice chair is here. I take charge. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. <gasps> the
0: really funny thing about this clip, as well, Zach, is just how raucous the whole situation is. The, my my favourite part is after Jackie Weaver kind of throws the guy out of the meeting, and then kind of some of the other people in the meeting and go she's kicked him out she's kicked him out it's just really funny I, th- I think it's fantastic and kind of the other really funny thing about the situation as well is that Jackie Weaver has been doing the rounds on like BBC Women's Hour and things like this today in the in the mainstream press so this is seriously cut through it's like a global international story about Handforth Parish Council and I'll be totally <laughs> honest I have no idea Where hand is. I know it's actually in in the Midlands somewhere. I think it's kind of towards Uh the Welsh border in the Midlands because the the, the editor of Birmingham Live was gutted that he couldn't report on it and it went to Cheshire Live instead. Um, Anyway, local knowledge of the Midlands aside, the thing that caught my attention this week, um, I'm not actually too sure what's caught my attention this week. It's been an odd one. What I would say broadly, that I found quite interesting. Actually, this is what caught my attention this week. The alleged bust-up between the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer. So this happened, uh, or uh, allegedly uh, happened, or didn't happen. I don't, I don't really care whether it was true or not for the purposes of this segment. We hope, hope it's true. true. We hope um, it's true. Allegedly, Sakir Starmer had to be pulled away, held back from a physical confrontation <laughs> with the Prime Minister after PMQs on Wednesday. And um, this sparked lots of wonderful um jovial conversations about who would win in a fight, Boris Johnson or Sakia Starmer on Twitter on Wednesday afternoon. Um I would personally say Sakia Starmer, I just think he's probably probably got the energy to go longer. I think his footwork would be better. I don't know what you make of that, Zach. Um
1: yeah, I, I think Starmer. Uh, I think what Johnson's weight kind of makes a bit more portly and perhaps could definitely crush Keir Starmer like if, you know, if he was <laughs> to land on him but I just think Keir Starmer has the height and uh, like you said, I think he's got the stamina um, it's, it's going to be one of those uh, the legends, is it? did did they or did they not have a bit of a tête-à-tête but either way, I think it just show, it shows that Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson we're kind of back to normal in terms of having a leader of the opposition in terms of someone who just clearly does not like the prime minister i think we had that with jeremy corbyn to an extent and we had that with david uh, david miller that's a bit of a and slip had that with ed miller and david cameron but i think with keir starmer you've got that professionalism that the last two leaders of the opposition haven't had and therefore you're now looking at really a leader for the opposition who has dare i say forensic skills uh, who just evidently doesn't like the the person they're opposite and I'm sure that's reciprocated by Boris Johnson as well. For sure, and I, I think what I would—I'll do some
0: serious reporting on this point about kind of what happened on Wednesday afternoon. So, multiple witnesses claim that Labour MP Chris Matheson had to pull Starmer away from the PM after he was wound up during kind of PMQs. Matheson, who has spoken to the press about this, said, and I quote, that this story is complete bollocks. So, take from that what you will. I think it's interesting nonetheless and I think it sparked a wonderful 15 minute period in my life where I was imagining some kind of YouTube boxing undercard between the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition and then I messaged that saying that we should do like a, a dream team five-a-side tournament for MPs and then all sorts of crazy ideas popped into my mind and then I remembered that the episode we did do that was kind of slightly more geared towards being fun, no one listened to so I thought we probably shouldn't do that. Anyway, however, <laughs> um, one other thing did catch my attention this week. It was about a government minister and the response to a journalist who basically asked a really routine question about why a minister did or did not appear in a video about vaccines. Zach, did you come across this story?
1: I saw bits and pieces with it, so I'm not completely adept with it, but it's something that the MP in question has been associated with essentially trying to get one over journalists for a long time, and it was again the discourse that arose from it became quite nasty towards the journalist, which is obviously unacceptable. Yeah.
0: So the story kind of I'll set it out at this point. So this concerns the equalities minister Kenny Bagenock. Um and she published this thread on January the 29th So, and I should say we're currently recording this podcast on. The 5th of February. I've got no idea what day of the week it is. It's Thursday, I believe. Um, So, yeah, it was was earlier this week or last week rather. And I'll just read out the thread. So a sad insight into into how some journalists operate. On Wednesday, I shared our positive, well-received cross-party video to increase vaccine confidence in the midst of so much disinformation. Last night, we heard great news about the Novavax vaccine, which I've been trialing. Today, an unfortunate reminder of why there is so much confusion and mistrust was in meetings all day yesterday and been made aware of two emails received from Huffington Post journalist Nadine White. Now, the emails in question are then posted in the thread and I'll, I'll, read, I'll read both of them. A number of Black Cross Party MPs took part in a video encouraging vaccine take up across Black communities. This initiative has been well received and praised as a positive move. I understand that Ms. Badenoch, as a qualities minister, refused to participate in the video. May I have a statement detailing the reasons why, please? We're currently working towards a deadline of 5 p.m. today. That email was sent at 20 to 3. There was then a follow-up email at uh, 20 past 8 that evening that says, Dear Treasury Press Office, I'm chasing up a response to a query I made earlier today. Please provide me with a response from Kemi Badenoch." Or on her behalf by 10 a.m. tomorrow, this is an important matter. Now, what I would say at this point is that this is completely standard practice for a journalist. It's just complete. This is a complete non-story about the conduct of of Nadine White, the, the Huffington Post journalist, because when and I say this as someone who aims to go into a career in journalism and has worked in a newsroom and has chased kind of, press officers up about real-life stories. I mean, it's just part and parcel of being a journalist that you give people deadlines to respond by. And this was a really simple story, and the story in question wasn't actually published because there was no story to deal with at all. And it's just ridiculous. It's really gross that the MP felt the need to do this, and it's just really disgusting, to be honest. It's, It's not even even slightly amusing. And the the reason I say this is because there is so much anger kind of directed at journalists. And a lot of it is like, you're left wing, you're right wing, all this kind of stuff. And whether or not they happen to be valid criticism is kind of not part of this discussion. But what you see a lot is people questioning why journalists are doing things. And like this, this point in particular is the, the journalist in question has clearly received a tip off that the MP in question didn't want to be involved in this video for whatever reason. So you then put a question to the minister before you publish a story about her not wanting to be in the video, asking why didn't you want to be in the video? Instead of answering the question, the minister then outs the question as some kind of attempt to sow confusion and mistrust. And then later in the thread, she then explains why she didn't want to take part in the video. And I'll read that to you now. Disinformation is on the rise, yet Huffington Post are looking to sow distrust by making up claims I refused to do a video campaign, which I suggested and promoted. Even when Labour and Tory MPs work together, some in the media will still look for conflict. And the main reason I didn't appear in the question uh, in the video because I'm taking part in promoting vaccine trials. So she's, she's, she's essentially in a trial when she's been promoting that. Given the worst disinformation, is that the virus is being tested first on black people. I thought it better to avoid mixed messages about volunteering to be tested. This is the thing. That is a completely legitimate reason not to take part in the video. And this is why this story is so ridiculous and such a self-inflicted own goal. It's because Kenny Badenot had a perfectly valid reason not to want to take part. There were lots... I say lots, but there was talk on social media about kind of how the vaccine was being tested, whether or not the vaccine was good, all this kind of stuff. They were valued or not, and often in many cases, not so valid concerns about the vaccine. So then if you're concerned about those and you don't want to be caught up in misinformation and you don't want to appear in a video as a result of that, why not just tell the journalist that and then there isn't a story and there isn't any outrage? This is the thing about this whole situation. Journalist asks very simple question. Member of Parliament refuses to ask, answer very simple question and then accuses the journalist of misinformation about an article she hasn't wrote yet. It's just ludicrous.
1: And it's a, it's true to form with a lot of the MPs of the Conservative Party, it seems like they're aiming their fire at journalists for stories that haven't started yet. And it's all about promoting truth and it's just frustrating because it's a matter of execution the execution's been so poor on the MP's part that one would really go well hang on a minute yes that's a perfectly good excuse why didn't you just start with that It, it really only takes what a couple of minutes to send that email to the journalist to say this is why I'm not doing it there's not really a story here and lo and behold the journalist will go away and say well there is no story because the MP is doing this instead it 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 was really frustrating seeing the timeline kind of up in arms you know the usual suspects up in arms against the journalists and it was again I think it just shows you really the regrettable direction our discourse both online and offline is going towards where journalists are being preyed upon by people for no reason and I think MPs really should shoulder a lot of responsibility now, as to their role in this. It's not exactly they're not forbidding this. In a way, I think they're kind of encouraging it.
0: Yeah, that's the issue, and I think a very easy get out of free, uh, get out of jail free card for MPs and politicians around the world at this point is to go very populist and kind of to attack journalists. And it's a little bit Trumpian in that sense. It's just trying to delegitimize legitimate questions and and we see this all the time on sites like Guido Forks, where the assertion is that kind of an expert on the BBC shouldn't shouldn't be on the BBC given their opinion because they are a, a labor activist and that's always the story and it's like well the person in question was actually just giving a scientific opinion about a vaccine it had nothing to do with with their political views and if it had they would have been presented as a as a labor activist for example And you see things like this all the time to try and delegitimize the things that people are saying. And I think the minister has just got this so wrong because there was no controversy to be had. And I tweeted at the time that this is very similar to a situation that happened with Hull City last year. So the Athletic were going to run a story where basically they talk about all the things that Hull's ownership group had done wrong since taking over, over the club. Um, and whole city took umbrage to a number of things that they were kind of asked questions about and rather than answer some of the questions or just say no comment. And again, I'll, I'll say this in really plain terms, when you write an article about someone, particularly if it's negative, you're meant to give them or its kind of journalistic practice to give them the right of reply. Hence why the journalist asked the member of parliament this question. And then instead of answering the questions by the athletic, whole city posted a public statement on the website for more attention to the issues, kind of going through how this was illegitimate and all this stuff and posted a big document kind of going detailing their position on lots of these things, much of which was meant to be censored, but they didn't censor it properly so people could copy and paste the document and then see what was underneath kind of the blacked out bits. I mean, it's just like PR disasters like this, where you try to kind of weasel around proper journalism and it's just really gross and it yeah it it annoyed me and I think that's probably why I've had a little bit of a rant to open up this (laughs) this episode of the podcast we've been going for quite a while now I didn't realize um Zach the main thing we wanted to discuss on this episode was the local elections because we've been speaking a lot about the coronavirus and how that's impacting kind of the economy, how that's impacting our politics, how of course that impacted the the 2020 US presidential election. One of the things we haven't spoken about is what this might all mean for the local elections. They're meant to take place at the start of May. Do you believe that that's still gonna be the case? There's talk in Scotland that maybe it it shouldn't happen in May.
1: Uh, Yes, Um, I think it was as early as today only because kind of the gospel account for anything that election-based election match UK. Uh, I think they said the government have confirmed it, for the, I think for the 5th of May, it's whenever the first Thursday of May is. Um, and what's significant actually, is not actually whether or not they're going ahead, it's this sheer amount of elections that are taking place on the 5th of May, because there's been a lot of stuff backdated from last year as well as this year. So it's the first massive test, I think, A, for the government since the coronavirus pandemic, the first massive test for Keir Starmer's leader of the opposition and see the first real limp paper test of of Scottish nationalism and and the SNP in general, whether or not we are heading towards, whether it's at the end of this parliament or perhaps the next parliament, whether or not we're heading to that second independence referendum that's been so eagerly anticipated by the political commentariat.
0: Do you think the local election should take place in May because we're still in the place where coronavirus rates and coronavirus death figures are still relatively high. Of course, they are coming down, but from a very high base or a very high ceiling, whichever way you want to put it. If we are going to hold an election in May, that would mean you'd have to start campaigning kind of towards the end of March would be the traditional time you'd you'd start going about that kind of stuff. That would include knocking at doors, holding kind of town hall meetings being out in the public in, in town, town centres on stalls and this kind of stuff, that obviously isn't going to be completely possible this year, or at least not in the spring by the government's own admission, kind of with regards to the position on schools. So, is this the right time to be holding
1: local elections? Part of me thinks yes, because I think the election is way overdue. But then again, I think that's a lazy one on my part so in a way I think when you weigh things up yeah it's not going to be a normal election campaign there's going to be loads of mini local issues it's not uh, a general election as such so it's not going to be a uniform campaign trail where Keir Star was on a battle bus going across councils to council it's going to be loads of individual stuff but also The infrastructure of our election system at the moment, I don't think can deal with the the pandemic settings. And I know that they're ramping up proxy voting and mail voting. But again, one would probably think we could delay it to the autumn merely just so we can get the structure in place that even by by the autumn where a lot of the restrictions apparently will go. There will still be a lot of scepticism from other people, so from other age bands, especially the over 65s, whether they actually want to walk to the polling station. These are the ones that turn up historically. Um, I think more should be done. I think more should be consulted on how they're going to drive turnout. Because I think as much as it's exciting that there's going to be loads of local elections going on, I'm really doubtful about turnout. I think turnout's going to be one of its worst in a long time not for political apathy's sake but for public health sake and a lot more should be done by the government to encourage postal voting and to shore up that system and perhaps made a bit too early to ha- make that happen so it, you can see both sides of the argument but yeah i think taking my own political hat off and looking at the being realistic i think yeah they should have gone ahead in may probably the summer if not the autumn just to make sure everything's fine
0: i agree i don't think this is the right time to hold local elections and i say that not because i don't want the local elections to happen obviously i do and i do think it's an impossible situation for politicians to be in because if you are a sitting councillor mayor whatever it might be and then you turn around and say, look, we should we should postpone the vote. It does look like you're dodging kind of democracy at that point. And obviously, that's not what we want to be, given the events that happened in America last year. So it, it's problematic, isn't it, for elected officials to say, look, we should delay the vote. And it's already happened once. And Sadiq Khan has said, look, he, w- he wants the vote to to go ahead, if, if suitable and all this kind of stuff. But I'm honestly of the opinion that it probably shouldn't because... I don't think the infrastructure is in place especially for as you say zach people who turn out in local elections tend to be one of two things they tend to be hardcore politics geeks the people listening to this podcast for example or (laughs) old people typically are are the two categories or older people at the very least so it's, it's not going to be kind of typically people our age younger people aren't going to be turning out it's typically going to be older people people who have Really established roots in their local community and are staying there for the long haul. Otherwise, local elections aren't, aren't as interesting for you if you're renting and moving accommodation kind of once a year, whatever it might be. So, I just think with that in mind, and of course, I'm not worried for the health of the politics geeks, I'm worried for the health of, of the older voters. Um, it just seems like a, a, a silly situation to be in. And what I found really strange about this whole thing. Is that the government hasn't pushed, or at least it hasn't been in my newsfeed if they have pushed it. So, therefore, I heavily suspect that they haven't been pushing this. They haven't been pushing messages or advertising about kind of postal voting and how you might register to postal vote. And I think that's really naive because to expect an election to go ahead in May without a significantly increased postal turnout, I think is, as I say, I think it's naive.
1: Yeah and inevitably when it comes to election night and we're dissecting the results all of these arguments are going to be rattled out it's not as if it's hindsight it's it, it's certain that all of these arguments about oh well the system wasn't good enough oh well a lot a lot of people turned out it's something that I think is a problem that's pressing on a lot of things so uh, in a way ironically it would show there's not enough faith in the government by not turning up just because, well, if the government say it's safe and the government have lifted restrictions, do I really go out and vote? I don't know. I'm still worried. Therefore, the equivocation could be that, well, the government haven't done enough to make me feel safe enough to go out and vote. So, again, I'm just surprised that there's not been this like massive encouragement or this kind of recruitment drive, if you want to call it that to get people voting and to get people encouraged to vote and to actually go out and vote come May because local elections are really important and I think the importance of local elections per se has been really understated uh, for as long as we've been alive anyway.
0: Yeah and what I'll ask you as well is when when I say this I don't mean which political party you're going to vote for but how do you intend to vote are you thinking of going to a polling station postal proxy whatever it might be
1: um depends where i am because if i'm if i'm still in canterbury uh, i think where i vote is actually on the campus it's only like a two-minute walk and even at home it's about five minute walk. i think i'll go to the polling station but again i might just if it's easier, i might just get the postal vote and post it in i'm still i' am going to vote it's more whether or not um i go actually go to the station or i'm not too sure yet. yeah
0: i agree i'll i'll vote in in person for the for the local elections in in the wonderful city of culture of coventry mm-hmm. um so yeah i think it, there are lots of issues with regards to this election i honestly believe that the turnout will be depressed i think that's inevitable given the events of the past kind of twelve months and given how that might affect the number of likely voters that are in the country. Um, I think I think it is just likely that the voting figures are going to be down and of course local elections tend to have relatively small turnout anyway so that's going to be something to keep an eye on. Something that you do keep an eye on Zach kind of over time is how events in politics and obviously at the moment kind of vaccine distribution might affect future electoral events. So the question that I'll put to you now Zach is in light of the government's seemingly successful rollout of the vaccine, how do you think that might affect kind of where the seats fall in May?
1: I think predictably... Um, if it's not going to be represented by actual councils one it will be in terms of the amount of votes. I think you'll see the Conservatives at least have a bit of a bounce from the polling that they've been having for the last two months, which I think for their standards has been pretty dreadful, being consistently below 40%. I think you'll see the Conservatives definitely bounce back um, into the 40s, if not a smidgen off of what they got at the last general election two years ago that all their faults, I think the people will kind of again take that dim view of the government that well at least the vaccines are now here this is the one thing people were really worried about when the vaccines started to be distributed that they've messed everything else up if they messed the vaccines up that's it that's it for everyone but you know the, the vaccination program we both said it last week it's been exceptional at, at this rate I think I saw a graphic that if we're vaccinating at this rate, everyone, virtually everyone will have their first dose, I think, by August, which would be an incredible achievement. And obviously, the more vaccines that are distributed, the the quicker it is, it, we will be able to lift restrictions. Um, it does make you think, though, as we said at the top of the discussion, that if we did delay the local elections, I think you'll start to see the economic effect kind of factor in that redundancies will be going up even further and more strikingly than they are at the moment. And governments who are sitting on top of a recession and high unemployment never really do well. So I think you'll see the Conservatives definitely benefit from the vaccine bouts. Um, but even then, it, it shouldn't be understated that Labour, you know, are recovering from their election defeat in 2019. Okay, they're not going to be 20 points ahead like like the mean. But I think there's definitely you're going to see um really where the the flaw for Labour is because at the moment Labour are being criticised left, right, and centre for everything they say and do by <laughs> Labour's own members. So that's what makes this election really interesting. Is well, what is Labour's flaw? What's the worst they could possibly do under Keir Starmer?
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be really tricky for Labour because if it, it very much depends on how the issue is framed, I think, in, in the press and, and by the media, especially the print media, because, of course, I think people who still read newspapers are disproportionately the people who turn out on local election day. Um, if we're doing a little bit of, of, of reading into the to the future on that one. So if, if the main narrative is about Vaccine distribution being the success that will obviously help the Conservatives. If it's about kind of Britain being one of the worst kind of places for for fatality rates, then it's it's obviously not going to benefit the Conservatives. And I think that is a really tricky issue for them to navigate because I think Labour will want to run a positive board. Um, obviously, that's difficult to do if, if you frame your campaign in a way where you're, you're talking about kind of hundred thousand people dying of a of a deadly disease. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a really interesting campaign. I think the one that a lot of people listening to the podcast might be interested in is kind of the London mayoral election, which I think is probably one of the the most talked about local elections happening this year and just in general, really. Um I'm assuming you think Sadiq Khan has, has already got this one in the bag.
1: Yeah, it, it's going to be whether or not he wins it outright in the first round, which would be absolutely emphatic for him. It'd be another endorsement that Labour are, that London is a Labour city. But again, the devil's in the detail. The makeup of the Labour vote in London is not really going to be a concern, I think, for the Labour Party. I think they've got London and going to the next election, they can look to make gains in London The big questions in London is going to be how badly is the Conservatives being seen as? And that will translate inevitably into the support for Sean Bailey, but also the Liberal Democrats, because there is a a string of seats in London that the Lib Dems should look to win. And if the figures aren't looking promising, okay yes we are miles away from an election we always say that as a health warning every time we talk about the polls and talk about seats but if the Lib Dems are still receiving like relatively lukewarm responses to them in London which you know is the makeup really of the Lib Dems is that it's a metropolitan kind of area it's very much a a euro-friendly area if that can't translated into good votes for the Liberal Democrats then they're going to have a a real big issue on their hands going into further elections. Again, this is like the first kind of bellwether of how the Lib Dem leadership has moved on from Joe Swinson. And again, basically the tragedy of the pandemic politically for the Lib Dems is that they've just not been able to cut through, that people are beginning to turn on Labour in terms of, well, Labour just like the Tories usually this is fertile territory for a third party but again we've not really seen much of the Liberal Democrats enough to really push them ahead in the polls I think they're still around six seven percent which is just absolutely diabolical for them historically um so yeah I think London is just going to be that kind of through the looking glass for the Liberal Democrats I think it's not really a concern for Labour in London because I think that's kind of home territory for them and and yeah
0: Yeah, that's that's my reading of the situation. Well, I I I think Sadiq Khan is probably going to win in the first round, um, just because Sean Bailey's campaign is so horrifically bad. Some of the policy (laughs) ideas that he's come up with are just simply abysmal. That's so bad. And again, I'm not afraid to to praise conservatives when they come up with good ideas as I, I had done kind of in the past on this podcast, um, Sean Bailey is just offering nothing for me. And again, it was over kind of the Christmas period when he was sending out, I, I don't know if you would have received one yourself, Zach, um, sending out uh, campaign material that would look like an official document talking about a tax increase. Um, Oh. It's stuff like that that a I hate. I really hate dirty politics. I, I just I hate the idea that you'd send out a letter that might genuinely trick some people into thinking it was kind of a, a real letter from City Hall. It had like a fake City Hall kind of uh, watermark kind of l- label on it. Um, it was just a bit odd. And the other thing I don't get about Sean Bailey at the minute is just like, what is? The offering it's just, and I th- I think the the bigger reason why Sean Bailey is ultimately doomed in this election is because a the Conservatives don't believe he can win. I think if the Conservatives believe that he was in with half a chance, they'd be making more of a song and dance about this. And b a number of the things where he's saying like he disagrees with Sadiq Khan on are issues that Sadiq Khan himself isn't happy about either. So it's like. All of the stuff we saw earlier earlier this year, last year rather, about Transport for London and the bailout they received from government and how they had to kind of change the congestion charge zone and all this kind of stuff. These were all part of the deal that Sadiq Khan had to accept to keep TFL running. Of course, this deal was brokered by, you guessed it, the Conservative government. So even in those areas, Sean Bailey can't make a compelling argument or at least he can't make a legitimate compelling argument because the things he would be objecting to were inflicted by his own government and i think that is ultimately why this is just going to be a a one-horse race
1: absolutely um just historically in london elections I, i don't think anyone's ever won it in the first round have they Uh, You might you probably am wrong but in terms of it's such um because of the system it's it'll be such a surprise even though Sadiq Khan I think has done a in his term a a relatively good job he's been of course faced with a lot of issues I think the pandemic is actually where Sadiq Khan has shined um, considering what he stood up for for Londoners I think again that kind of thing will resonate I think with the voters that Yes, Sadiq Khan hasn't been the perfect mayor for London. I don't think anyone ever has been for London. And really, the alternative of Sean Bailey, I think, will factor in for people. I think Sean Bailey, in general, is quite an unpopular politician. That I think he's lost near enough every election he has participated in. And it's just the attitude, I think. I think, did you see the, um, the attitude towards homeless people? It's those kind of things that you're thinking that will never win you votes. And it doesn't help the Conservatives, I think this is what the Conservatives clocked on, they can't support Sean Bailey too much, because when he's so politically toxic, it would just again reinforce that image of the nasty party, because Sean Bailey's saying, well, homeless people should have five thousand pounds of savings for, for a house, it's like, well, that's completely self-defeating, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's it's those kind of blunders that make it so difficult to see how how there's any sort of path to victory for Sean Bailey. Um, Going through, as you were speaking there, I'm I'm looking at a riveting Wikipedia page about past London mayoral election results. So in 2000, Ken Livingston uh, came top in the first round on 39%, I should explain, in order to be elected mayor of London, you need to win 50 plus 1% of the vote. So you need an absolute majority. If you don't achieve an absolute majority in the first round of voting, everyone apart from the top two are knocked out and then their votes are redistributed. So for example, if I were to vote for my first preference ballot for the Liberal Democrats and then my and, and they finished third, and my second preference was to vote for the Labour Party, then my vote would be distributed to the Labour Party. In 2000, in the first round, Ken Livingston got 39%. In 2004, he got 36.8%. 2008, Boris Johnson, as the Conservative candidate, got 43.2%. 2012, 44% for Boris Johnson. And finally, in 2016, 44.2% for the current mayor, Sadiq Khan. It will be fascinating if Sadiq Khan does win this in the first round. I honestly believe that it's possible. Um, And I think... I don't know what you make of this, Zach. But I think there are some slight similarities between what we've seen with Sadiq Khan's popularity throughout the pandemic and what happened with the New York mayor kind of as well throughout the pandemic, because it's important to remember that New York was absolutely battered by the coronavirus and and Mayor Cuomo kind of did things that were really quite terrible at the time. He didn't deal with it well at all to begin with. And even so, even despite making all of those mistakes, He's kind of had a very active stance with regards to his approach to the media. And he's come out of this and people still like him, even though New York remains kind of historically one of the hotspots for the coronavirus. And there's a similar story in London. Like London has been hit pretty hard by this, as shown by kind of events over kind of the past month or so. And yet Sadiq Khan is perhaps on course for for a historic first round victory in the london mayoral election do you, do you see any kind of similarities there
1: uh yeah i mean again i think if you put sadiq khan's actually long term thinking you know what he's presiding over for example i think it was it it was at the start of his um mayoralty that you had that huge surge in knife crime and a lot of people were angry and baying for sadiq khan and at the time you're thinking well This really has put Khan in a real difficult position. If he can't get a hold of it, he will lose the next mayoral election. Yet, again, he's overcome it. You know, There's a lot more work to do. Same with the pandemic that started off with a bit of a rocky track. Some of what he said has been unpopular in terms of declaring a state of emergency in London, um, calling for tougher restrictions. I think he was really uh, heckled by some people about asking for tier four in London for a long time back when all this was back nearly at christmas which feels again like an eternity ago so yeah i think similarities there and it will be again if anything for labour in london i think that again labour in london's not not the issue i don't think sadiq khan's the issue it's going to be what happens after sadiq khan because inevitably i think with rule uh, the rules in the Merit, you can't go for three turns so after khan they'll have to find someone else and then It'll be interesting where Sadiq Khan goes politically. Does he go back into the House of Commons? Does he maybe fancy a crack at potentially the leadership if all goes really badly for Keir Star at the next general election? So, yeah, I do see similarities um, in that sense. And also really... I would be fascinated. If he wins it in the first round, I think that's going to really increase his political capital in the Labour Party. And it will be a fight for Keir Starmer. He will win um, against perhaps the, the left of the, the the Labour Party. I think Sadiq Khan is essentially a, in that bracket with, with Keir Starmer that they're not massively left. And they're not massively towards the Blairite right wing. It's that, that centre left politician that Labour are trying to reclaim.
0: Yeah, I, I I, believe, I think that's spot on, to be honest. And I think a lot of the criticism, and I don't want to reduce all criticism leveled at the Sadiq Khan morality to this, but I think it is a part of the discussion about Sadiq Khan. I think a lot of, a lot of the criticism that we see from Sadiq Khan, and I'm not saying this is from Sean Bailey, I'm just saying this is from the broader public, the broader kind of electorate who do dislike Sadiq Khan, it's typically race-based. You see a lot of this stuff on social media that is really horrific about things like London and Stan and things like this, which is just horrific and racist and gross. And of course that isn't a strategy from which you can win elections. And I think that's ultimately what we're, what we're going to see this year. I think Steve Kahn is, is on course for a really impressive, resounding victory. I think that's probably what's going to happen. And I think it's, I think it's probably deserved. I think he's dealt with the pandemic pretty well. The other kind of um, big ticket mayoral election takes place in Manchester. That sees the incumbent Andy Burnham up against the Conservatives, Laura Evans, and the Liberal Democrats, Simon Lepori. Um I suspect we won't
1: spend too much time talking about this one, Zach, but how do you see this going? <laughs> I think that uh, Andy Burnham will win I think his popularity uh, a couple of months ago kind of showed really that politicians aren't just politicians they're also humans I mean you really saw the human side I think we said this countless times during that period of time when Andy Burnham had shot up into the into the public eye against against the government and I think that will be viewed very favourably, and the electorate will be very generous to Andy Burnham and Labour in Manchester. Um, if anything, I'd say again, La- Labour's fortunes in the north and the northeast and northwest—you know—that's where I think I am going to be most interested with in the local elections. Have Labour a learned, and B are Labour learning, and C are Labour even making any inroads in in Manchester? Even in the Midlands, Wolverhampton, for example, these are the kind of areas where Labour traditionally could rely on support. But again, the national trend would suggest that support is dwindling. So I think that Andy Byrne will be a comfortable victory, though, just because I think he has dealt with the coronavirus very well against the government in terms of really unpopular policies yeah
0: I think Andy Burnham doesn't have anything anything to worry about at all if i'm actually looking at the 2017 results and it was it was absolutely emphatic there was only one two three four five six individual wards that didn't vote in the majority for Andy Burnham again it's, it uses the same electoral system as the london election so you just need kind of 50% plus one in order to win the election. If you're not in the top two, you're eliminated and your votes are redistributed. Andy Burnham won in the first round with 63.4%. Um, it will be fascinating to see whether or not he can kind of surpass that this time round. And I think kind of the point you made about Sadiq Khan stands with Andy Burnham as well, because they're both politicians who have proven pretty effective throughout the pandemic and perhaps after after the the next term looking looking ahead to towards the next general election they'll be they'll be hoping for a seat in the house of parliament zach i think that probably wraps up local elections unless there's anything else you wanted to cover
1: no just that again just an extension of what i just said essentially this is a big bellwether for labor are they recovering from the election defeat you know i definitely suspect they will
0: yeah, I think overall it's it's going to be fascinating. I, the, to be honest, the, the the party that I'm most interested to see how they do are the Liberal Democrats. Um, if there isn't a local resurgence under Sered Davy, I think, I think that's going to hugely because Lib Dems do well locally, even when they don't do well nationally and if they don't do well this year of all years when the Conservatives have had such a rough time in terms of in terms of governing from Westminster that that will be that'll be hugely concerning so yeah I think that will be that's the one to watch for me on that note we should probably mention what's happening in Scotland at the moment I suspect that in the next couple of weeks we'll be talking about kind of the the case between Alex Salmond and, and and First Minister Nicola Sturgeon um, before that, we should touch briefly on kind of the Holyrood elections that, again, will be happening in May unless they are postponed again. Is this going to be a, an SNP
1: landslide? Uh, I believe it will be. And that's where the big arguments begin. Um, we had Keir Starmer months ago saying an SNP victory. Maybe he should have caveated that with a landslide. Um would be essentially an endorsement of a second referendum um, but again i think again the devil in the detail in scotland's not going to be the scale of the smv victory as such it's who's going to finish second in scotland is it still going to be the conservatives or a labor making after getting rid of richard Leonard the recovery they, they thought they'd get i think the leadership is towards the end of the month but we'll find out who the new leader is i think it'll be anna sawar who's really really good uh from what i've for the minimal content i've read and heard so yeah it's going to be such a big conundrum and if there is an snp landslide because it poses questions for the labor party do they actually go back on what they said oh by the way when we meant it meant a referendum we meant you know in the next generation or so what does it mean for boris johnson who is trying to save the uk um by visiting Scotland probably not the best thing to do given how unpopular he is in Scotland and going forward really is there any room for other parties in Scotland because if it's still this SNP sole party dynamic when does that actually start to to go wrong because that happened with Labour you know in the early in the mid-90s going on to the Land side they were completely unassailable in Scotland 2007 came around they started to crash and the SNP are going on that same cycle they're going they're only getting better and better and better when does that actually stop and if there is a huge landslide at this in this election you, you'd say well it won't be for another good few years yet and the, the uh issue i was, i won't say problem the issue of scottish nationalism and scottish independence is something that will not go away and it will remain a headache whether the prime ministers boris johnson Rishi sunak or even keir starmer
0: yeah, looking at some of the polling, I've got the polling figures in front of me now. And it's it's not looking good for for anyone apart from the SNP, if we're being totally honest. And again, it's it's a long time since, and of course, it's important to remember that the way Scottish elections work is slightly different. So you have a constituency vote or you vote kind of for a specific member of Scottish Parliament to represent you. So the member of Scottish Parliament for Dundee. And then you vote kind of in a regional vote where you, you pick a party and then they send a candidate in based on proportional representation so if you look at kind of the constituency vote the smp are currently averaging kind of in all of the polls around 54 percent that's that's pretty amazing to be honest behind them kind of the conservatives are averaging apparently 21 percent according to the polls of polls labor on about 16 percent Then the liberal democrats down on around eight. That's the constituency vote. If you then go across and look at the regional vote, it's a similar story. So the polls of polls have the SNP on 46%, the Conservatives on around 20%, with Labour on about 16%. Of course, under this system, as you would expect, the Green Party and the Liberal Democrats fare a little bit better, according to the polls of polls. The Green Party are actually ahead of the Liberal Democrats at the moment. They're on about nine points. Liberal Democrats on about eight points. The Reform Party, of course, recently rebranded from its previous guys as the Brexit Party hasn't registered in the in the polls yet. I think the important thing to take from this, and the only reason you'd have any reason to be optimistic if you were kind of anti-SNP in this election, is that since kind of September, I guess. SNP polling figures in in the regional vote have slipped a little bit um, but still nowhere near enough for the Conservatives or Labour to mount any kind of meaningful fight back. Do you think this is a case where the unionist parties need to just create some form of kind of coalition against the SNP in terms of electioneering and perhaps even governing?
1: That's exactly what I was about to say, actually. That's, that's telepathy in action there yeah um i think the only way you can fight the, the cause for independence in scotland is how you how they fought it in 2014 which was a via a referendum but b via that broad coalition this ambivalent coalition yes between tory labor lib dem et al that the snp aren't really that good and it's not about independence it's about real issues in scotland and there's been a lot of issues i think andrew Neil since he's left the BBC has kind of really gone at the SNP for a lot of things it's these kind of things that need to be brought up I think by this unionist cause so that's I'm surprised that's not being floated about in Scotland because we all know that essentially the Tory it won't be a Tory Scotland or a Labour Scotland for decades it's really about stopping the SNP completely bludgeoning the electorate into submission that this hyper landslide that they're going to get And I think the only way you can do that is from from some sort of electioneering, I don't know, some sort of non-aggression pact in seats to get as much seats between the unionist parties as possible to stop the SNP from having this kind of steamrolling through another Hollywood. But again, as the danger was in the 2019 general election, I think party politics just simply will not allow for that to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah i think i mean ultimately that's that's the problem isn't it i think there's there's not any parties working together and i think that's why we're going to see these issues in the end it's because british politics is, and i say british on purpose i'm not i'm not referring to, to scotland on its own is so adversarial it's so heavily kind of you're either with us or against us so we work, we can't possibly work together that's why we're kind of in this mess and it's why the Liberal Democrats and Labour Party wasted a perfectly good opportunity to win more seats at the last general election, because they couldn't just work together in, in seats like uh Westminster and City, for example, where I think I think that was Chukaromuna's seat. It was definitely one of the one of the defectors over to Liberal Democrats, where they just lost out because they split the vote. It's just things like that are just mind-boggling. Um, what we should say as well is that kind of from the 2016 Scottish Parliament elections, uh, the SNP currently have 69 seats, the uh, Conservative have, oh no, sorry, I'm mistaken. So uh, the SNP have 63 seats, Conservatives 31, Labour 24, Greens 6, Liberal Democrats 5. I mean, it's it doesn't look good, does it? Let's be honest, for, for the Tories and Labour.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that will shape a lot of, I think Conservatives really understate the importance of what will happen after May, that the call for this independence referendum is only going to increase. And as much as Boris Johnson will want to hide away from that reality, the momentum is behind the SNP. And if Labour, you know, the SNP can always bring up Keir Starmer's comments, which I think were, at the time, probably the best thing to say, but at the same, I think ironically with hindsight, it will come back to haunt Labour and it will be pure political points. That I think for Boris Johnson to say, well, hang on a minute. I'm not the one who wants to divide the country. It's Keir Starmer and Labour because they want the referendum. But at the same time, there's that tacit admission that the government have failed Scotland to an extent where even the notion of a referendum would be seen. Well, it's, a, it's they're going to vote. Yes. So it, these difficult conversations are going to happen in the party, um, whether Boris Johnson likes it or not. There's going to be mounting pressure on that. It's not going to go away.
0: Indeed. What I should add, um, following my previous comments, is that the number of seats per party has changed slightly since the last election. So I, I read the results from 2016 rather than the current seats. Um, so the only really substantial change is that Reform Party do have a... Do have a seat in in the Scottish Parliament, Michelle Ballantyne. He was originally a Conservative MSP, then became independent, and now is sitting for Nigel Farage's Reform Party. I think it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting year for local elections as a whole, and I think Scotland is obviously the the most important in terms of the constitutional future of the UK. On on the matter of the constitution, I I guess I should probably the law student among us, what he thinks of of the great constitutional question of our times. Um, If the SNP do win this election, would it be right for Westminster, in your view, to block a second referendum on on Scottish independence?
1: Oh, that is a minefield. Um, I believe there was a ruling, or there's going to be a ruling on whether or not Scotland can actually hold one. Whether or not Westminster can block, it's... It's that conflation, I think, of law and politics. It's, well, politically, it would be completely, it would be reprehensible even to deny people the vote. That's what the SNP will frame it as. We know that's what's going to happen. L- legally, it's about competences, And I don't think there's any competences for... Hollywood to actually legislate for a referendum on its own and actually have any weight to that result. So it could be any, it it could be similar to um, when Catalonia had their one years ago and they held it, but it wasn't legal. um So I think it, it, it's two completely different questions. I think politically, it's, of course, it's wrong if they say no to the referendum, especially when the SNP have a you know a thumping mandate. They've made this election essentially about whether or not there's going to be another referendum. But on the legal side of it, I don't think they have enough competence to actually have one, which really puts pressure on both Nicola Sturgeon to live up to her promise of another referendum, but also Boris Johnson on whether or not it's... the Is he going to fall into the David Cameron trap? Is he going to believe the his own hype that he can save Britain, he can save Scotland, things can only get better, that kind of thing?
0: the way I framed that. Absolutely correct. Politically, I mm-hmm. don't really like to stand on it. you were to win a landslide majority and central the SNP's message is that they will have another referendum. It's difficult politically to turn around and say, no, of course, I say difficult politically it, in actually doing that. It wouldn't be difficult. The Conservatives would just be able to say no, uh, not something that can be done like um, legally, of course, it's, it's a different story because, as you say, fairly thin in this country. There isn't a provision for a, a regional. kind of have those powers to call for that kind of election. Um, I'm not of the opinion at this point in time that people. That would be naive, and I think set back the move substantially i think that would be a really big mistake for them to make especially when they're trying to trying to say look we're kind of above this Westminster politics we want to do it the right way we want to be a, an independent country that can do things kind of the scottish way and then if you turn around and hold a, an illegal election that kind of undermines that message so it's it's going to be such a big year and i think that kind of is epitomised by the situation in Scotland. Zach, before we go, I think the the last thing we should probably discuss on this episode is is the vaccine saga and the European Union and all of that stuff. Do you have any strong feelings on the topic that you'd you'd like to start
1: off with? I, I just think it shows that the European Union really needs to get that together. It, it, it's been that culture of the blame game, isn't it? I think Ursula von der Leyen. I think blamed one of her advisors for the whole thing blowing up and the the, the real consequence is actually is what's going to happen further down the line that there's an erosion of trust now between the European Union and the United Kingdom that sort of harmony on Christmas Eve has come to a very quick end and it, it's something we predicted but not in this way we I personally thought it would be the UK being the antagonist and I, I was really surprised when the, it basically turned out the European Union were really antagonizing for this really controversial article that would would have caused some nasty nasty debate it it nearly did um so yeah i I think it's a real failure from the european union it's it's one of those big blunders that could be costly yeah
0: the first thing first um and i'll say this absolutely emphatically to avoid any kind of accusations that i'm I'm biased on this issue because I'm, I'm, i'm not afraid to say how it is the european union royally and I, I almost swore royally messed this up. Like <laughs> seriously, what on earth were they thinking? And again, I think the story you're talking about, Zach, and correct me if I'm wrong, there was there was a story in the press that said that the person who activated um Article sixteen of, of the of the Northern Ireland kind of regulation, the, the Brexit trade deal, um didn't really know the the political ramifications of of what they were doing. Is that the story you were referring to?
1: Yeah. And that's who uh, and I blame. It's a bit like, well, hang on a minute. You drafted uh, you, your party to this agreement. You should know the consequences of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, to be honest, I can I don't. I find it so difficult to believe that anyone working at the heart of the European Commission could not understand the politics of Northern and the Republic of Ireland. I just don't I just don't buy that at all, because this is an issue that Europe. Has been so heavily involved with since kind of the, the Belfast Agreement was 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 signed, the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Um, the European Union and United States were like kingmakers in this deal; they played a significant role in bringing this together. And of course, that was a big reason why they didn't want Brexit to happen in the first place. So, a to blame some technocrat for for making this mistake is ridiculous because a they don't get to make that decision without some kind of political oversight from from the commission itself. The, if they have been given permission to do this without that kind of oversight, well, that, that's a ridiculous style of leadership from, from president of, of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen. And C, I just don't believe that they could possibly be that naive. I just think they wanted to make a point. They made it horrifically badly. And The other thing to point out as well is that initially this wasn't even an issue for the British government to be dealing with. This was a dispute between AstraZeneca, a company that has been making vaccines in the United Kingdom, and the European Commission. And this is a story that's been kind of rumbling on for a couple of weeks. And to, to boil it down really briefly, AstraZeneca make the vaccine in the United Kingdom, at least they make kind of a large proportion of of the vaccine in in the United Kingdom in in terms of the total output they have. However, the vaccine is then put into the glass vials in a distribution center in Germany. And what the European Union basically threatened to do was to say that those vaccines were essentially European rather than British. And they could therefore be cut off from re-entering the British market through Northern Ireland because they believed that they were entitled to more vaccines than they were getting. And that's just ridiculous. And the important thing, thing to note as well, as, as horrific as the European Union's dealing, kind of management of this situation was, is that Boris Johnson threatened to do the same thing a week earlier. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that the European Union are, are in any way blameless for this. This is completely on them. They completely messed this up and what they did was completely reprehensible. Um, but both sides have been running kind of, fairly hot vaccine yeah no it is vaccine nationalism and speaking of vaccine nationalism I'll put this point to you Zach um I haven't seen the film Contagion but what do you make of uh, Matt Hancock's comments about kind of the vaccine policy being inspired by Contagion in in the sense that it was combating kind of the vaccine nationalism that you Just... just referred to
1: just absolute disbelief isn't it these are the people that are, that govern us and these are the people that make decisions that affect our everyday lives um i'm not surprised though because this is the same government that were asking i think the the set of holby city to give over their ventilators so it, it, it's it's satirical isn't it? It, it, it it's gone from satire to genuine reality it's like oh my god fair enough
0: i'm going to be <laughs> honest i, I... Again, this isn't the most important story that we'll talk about in the podcast, but I didn't—I didn't actually have an issue with with Matt Hancock making that remark for two reasons. Number one, I think he came up with the right answer, so the way that he got to the right answer isn't mm. isn't something that concerns me. I think as long as you, as long as you find the right solution, I don't—I don't really care whether you worked it out off the off the back of a cigarette packet or he did some mythical equation that I'll never understand that's that's perfectly fine I don't really care about that I'm a, I'm a results person I'm I'm all for parking the bus yeah. in that regard um the other reason why I don't have an issue with what Matt, Matt Hancock said was that the question that was put to him was kind of framed against the context that people in the cabinet disagreed over this and it wasn't like he was going to come out and say look I know better than everyone else in, in cabinet about how We should deal with this. So I think it was actually quite a clever comment to deflect away from what would have potentially been a really awkward answer, especially for other members of the cabinet.
1: Yeah, it's it's exactly that. And I think Matt Hancock is that that kind of political figure that just baffles you. You can never really um, pin down. I I think there was a briefing, wasn't there? I think it was it. Back in December, that outlandish promises were, were said as Hancockian. You're thinking, really? Is there not someone above that Hancock that makes equally ludicrous promises?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think we should probably wrap the podcast up in a second, but I will put one more point to you. Um, we, this episode has been really weird. We've not really... Uh, I'll be completely honest. Zach and I didn't plan the episode. We just kind of said, okay, we'll record it at two o'clock, and that that was it, basically. Um the only other cabinet minister that has really been catching my attention recently or has caught my attention for doing things that wouldn't catch your attention, if that makes sense, is the Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Um And there was polling out that I retweeted the other day, Zach, I'm not sure if you saw it, um, from Conservative Home that ranked govern, government ministers over the pandemic. Have you Have you seen it?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a it's really surprising one, isn't it? Liz, Liz trust really is high up isn't
0: it yes so net satisfaction ratings for the cabinet and again this is a this is a survey of conservative party members in january 2021 by conservative home which is a website straight kind of tory magazine um there are only two members of the cabinet with negative net satisfaction rates i'll get to them in a minute um List Truss is, is, as you say, top with a positive 85.5% rating. I find that very surprising. Um, Rishi Sunak, 81.6% positive rating. Dominic Raab, 71.1% positive rating. Again, we've not really heard much from Dominic Raab recently, um, which stands out to me as well. Michael Gove, 60.9%. Boris Johnson, 55.1%. Uh, is there anyone else that's particularly interesting at this point? Oliver Dowden is lower than I would have imagined. He's down on 37.7%. He's, he's the minister for the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Um, and Matt Hancock, of course, would have been an oversight, not, not to mention the, the health minister during a pandemic. Um, he's on 34.6% positive rating. The people in the negatives, Amanda Milling, I'll be completely honest, I'm not really sure what she does, um, minus 2.1%. And most damningly, Gavin Williamson, minus 48.4%. <laughs> so we'll talk about two people at this point Rishi Sunak, 81.6%. Does he, why is he rated so highly? And is that sustainable? And Gavin Williamson, negative, almost 50% does he deserve to be kind of viewed that negatively
1: so with rishi sunak um i'm not surprised at the ratings. just just simply because he's not made we won't we won't do the whole men's gymnastics of what i'm about saying. he's not made the difficult decisions yet we've not had the budget yet so of course when you're handing out money like it's going out of fashion you are going to be popular because you are going to be seen as someone who's keeping businesses alive and people in work, which is evidently a, a good, obviously a good thing. At the same time, I don't think it's sustainable. Uh, the kind of the Sunak kind of approach to economics. I don't think that's that's sustainable. Ergo, I don't think his popularity is going to be equally sustainable. I think you've already got a suggestion that capital gains tax is set to be put into line with other income taxes now i think that would be a remarkably unpopular policy with the people that they're asking you know the conservative members aren't going to like that and again it might be viewed better and more favorably amongst voters that you know people who are subject to capital gains tax aren't your normal people in the red wall it's going to be other people that people do feel the government actually take care of all the time at the same time however It's going to be decisions about tax. It's going to be decisions about spending, that the harsh reality of this pandemic is going to usher in, I think, A, in the budget and B, in the next year or so. So I don't think the 81 odd percent is going to be sustainable. As to Gavin Williamson, then, well, he's going to be the fall guy for the government's kind of to and fro with schools. I think he's not really recovered from the A-level and GCC fiasco that happened in consecutive weeks i think that just shows you that whatever i think there's a briefing about a policy that that acts the summer holidays and, and shorten them to four weeks those are kind of the signs that that minister is in trouble i think gavin williamson's not just unpopular with the tory party members but i think he's unpopular with people in general and when it comes to a reshuffle i think he's going to be the first one to go
0: yeah, Gavin Williamson is is not going to be in the in the cabinet for much longer, I'd imagine. Well, he'll be in the cabinet for as as long as you said Zach until the next reshuffle, and then he will be first out the door. Um whether or not Williamson deserves his poll rating or not, I think I personally think he does. I think he's he's made a mess of absolutely mm. every possible issue that he could have. And I think it's in, encapsulated in some respects by kind of before the before the Christmas half term. There were a number of schools in one of the London boroughs. I want to say it was Greenwich who said, like, we're going to not go in this week because we we want to limit kind of spread amongst the community with the, the Christmas bubble situation that we had. Um, and then the, the Department of Education threatened to, to sue the schools if they if they did cut the end of term. Um, and then, of course. We then had all the issues with schools. I think that kind of encapsulates the issues that, that Gavin Williamson faces. And I think that's why he's his view so negatively by conservatives and the population at large. I've been thinking about Rishi Sunak over the past couple of days, um, which is slightly unusual. Um, anyway, uh, I've been thinking about Rishi Sunak in the sense that we've not really heard much from him. We hear kind of occasional uh Articles in the right wing press about how he's devising a big spending plan with with Boris Johnson. Um, But the thing that I find really striking about this is that once we get out of the pandemic for real, I'm not talking about kind of the end of of this lockdown, I'm talking about kind of back to whatever kind of normality will will await us at the end of this. People will look at Rishi Sunak and say, what was your role in this? Okay, yeah, you did. You did furlough. although you had to be kind of beaten over the head to, to, to extend it, for example. Yeah, you did all these things. And, th- and then people will remember, oh, didn't you, weren't you the guy that, that gave me half-price Nando's through, through August? Um, and wasn't it then the case that we'd realised that kind of sending loads of people to restaurants probably wasn't a great idea with an airborne virus? Um, and I think then his, his satisfaction ratings are going to absolutely go through the floor, and I think it's very good politically, strategically for him personally that he's not spending a lot of time with the likes of Piers Morgan, for example, because that would be the first question, wouldn't it? If he had any set piece interview with the likes of Piers Morgan, Andrew Neil, whoever it might be, the first question would be, uh, Mr. Chancellor, why did you do the Out to Help Out? And I don't really know how he answers that in a way that isn't going to,
1: to backfire absolutely and it's that age old saying chances are never really that popular i think the only even gordon brown to an extent wasn't particularly a flavor of the year chances the longer a chance stays in office the less popular they become and it's very it's as simple as that and it doesn't help with rishi sunak it's like every time he opens his mouth another billion pound is spent somewhere and it's like well and if the Tories want to do this kind of image of the, the party of economic competence, which I think won't, won't last in the next few years, Rishi Sunak would be very wise to start shutting up <laughs> in a way that you still see Rishi Sunak, you still see him, you know, tell, tell us what the Tory party is about, what the Tory party are doing. But again, it's this idea of every time he promises something, what's, gonna, what's it actually going to cost in the next couple of years? Because inevitably, Whether or not it's this budget or the next one, those hard decisions are going to have some sort of bite. And that's when the popularity just completely evaporates because there are always going to be people upset by budget there's always going to be people worse off because of a budget it's unavoidable it's whether or not there's an amount of people whether or not he can actually commit to the Prime Minister's pledge of levelling up for example does that factor in at this budget or the next one and if it doesn't factor in at this one what's going to be that poll effect for the Conservatives as a whole as well as Rishi Sunak's
0: yeah and Rishi Sunak's in such a difficult situation because even when I kind of walk through Coventry at the minute like remember the weatherspoons uh, remember remember a time when you could go to weatherspoons would, would be something um, but remember kind of the signs that weatherspoons put up about um some of the tax policies that Rishi Sunak had with regards to hospitality obviously eating out to help out kind of posters in weatherspoons that basically said Rishi Sunak demand to give tax equality to supermarkets and pubs i'm pretty sure that's word for word what it probably is um and like you've got big pictures of Sunak smiling and all this kind of stuff. And I just think kind of when push comes to shove, people are going to see that kind of material and think, oh. I think you're probably a little bit more culpable for, for the pandemic and the way it was handled than, than would initially seem. I think that is going to come back and bite Sunak soon, soon enough. It will be it will be really interesting to see what does actually happen with that. Um, I think that probably brings an end to this episode of the Midfield politics podcast. I'll hand this over to you, Zach. Any final thoughts?
1: No, I, th- I think it's been a really fun episode. We've kind of freestyled it. And then in a way we've, we've gone through a lot of topics, which I think will be of interest to anyone listening.
0: I hope so too. Um, yeah, I enjoyed this. It's always nice to, to chat with you, Zach, about a range of political issues, sometimes serious, sometimes not so <laughs> serious in the case of, 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 not having the authority. Not having the authority, not reading the standing orders, all that kind of stuff, kicking out Zoom calls. Um and on that though, we we will finish. Um as always, my name has continues to be and will be unless I, I, I'm forced to change my name by depot. Um my name is Luke James. Um I've been joined by Zach Green. You can find me on Twitter at Luke James underscore thirty two. You can find Zach on Twitter at Zachyavelli underscore V two, the Machiavellian figure of this podcast until next time um stay safe keep voting especially by post um and we'll see you soon